USA Current is a multimedia publication designed to keep healthcare professionals up to date with standards of care and new emerging ideas. Stay Current is created and edited by Todd Ponsky, Nicholas Bruns, and Ian Glenn in partnership with Globalcast MD and is recorded and produced at Akron Children's Hospital in Akron, Ohio. Welcome to Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery. This is Nicholas Bruns, one of the founding editors of Stay Current. Today's episode is our first audio journal club. We are discussing five papers today with our guests, Dr. Dan Von Allman, Dr. Witt Holcomb, and Dr. Aaron Lipscar. Links to the papers may be found in this episode's description. We begin now with Dr. Von Allman. Welcome to Stay Current, and in this episode, we're going to be doing our first audio journal club. And the purpose of this audio journal club is to review key articles in a very brief amount of time to address what are key things that we should be knowing as pediatric surgeons. We may not have time to read all the literature, so hopefully by doing these journal clubs, we should be able to uh, explain all the different uh, uh, key things that have been developed in the last year or two. And um, the first topic that we're going to be discussing is is the use of corticosteroids in biliary atresia. And presenting this paper, we have Dr. Dan Von Allman, and Dr. Von Allman is the director of the Division of Pediatric General and Thoracic Surgery and professor uh, at University of Cincinnati Department of Surgery. Dan, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. So what did you find in this article? So the paper, uh, the title of the paper is The Use of Corticosteroids After Porterenterostomy for Bile Drainage in Infants with Biliary Atresia, or the START Randomized Trial. Uh, the lead author on the paper is Georgie Bezerra from Cincinnati, and the senior author is Ron Sokol from Colorado. Uh, this paper is the product of a uh, multi-institutional group called the Childhood Liver Disease Research and Education Network. And this trial uh, was a randomized trial to look at the use of, of steroids in biliary atresia. The hypothesis of the trial is that steroids given after porterenterostomy impact the in outcome, uh, both with regard to uh, bile drainage as well as liver survival. The objective was to determine whether high-dose steroids are better than surgery alone for biliary atresia and survival of, of the liver after CASI. The methods that they used involved this multi-center randomized double-blind trial in which 140 infants were enrolled. There were 257 patients identified and 140 were randomized with 70 in each group. There was excellent matching of the groups with regard to their clinical status uh, at the time of enrollment. The intervention involved uh, participants were randomized to receive intravenous uh, steroids for two weeks, followed by oral steroids for two weeks, followed by a taper over nine weeks, so a total of 13 weeks of steroids that were initiated within 72 hours of the hepatoporterenterostomy. The outcomes of the study uh, were several. Uh, the primary outcome was to look at the percentage of participants with a serum total bilirubin level of less than 1.5 milligrams per deciliter with his or her native liver at six months post-hepatoporterenterostomy. The study was powered to detect a 25% absolute treatment difference. The secondary outcomes were also important, and these involved survival of the native liver at 24 months of age and the incidence of serious adverse events. The results of the study 
showed that the high-dose steroid therapy following surgery did not result in a statistically significant treatment difference in bile drainage at six months, with the treatment group having an incidence of 58.6% versus 48.6% in the placebo group. It was also true when the patients were segmented into those who were younger than 70 days at the time of Kasai and those who were over 70 days at the time of Kasai. So in both of those age groups, uh, treatment versus placebo did not make a difference in outcome, although a small clinical benefit could not be excluded. The outcome of survival without liver transplant at 24 months of age was also not statistically significantly different between the two treatment groups. The rate was 58.7% for the steroid group and 49.4% for the placebo group. As far as adverse events go, they were common in both groups with a near 80% uh, incidence in both uh, patient populations, uh, which they attributed to be largely reflective of the fact that they had severe underlying liver dysfunction at the time of surgery. Steroid treatment was associated with an earlier onset of serious adverse events in children uh, with biliary atresia, although the overall adverse event numbers were not statistically different. This is a fascinating paper. What are your general thoughts about it? So I think it's a it's a really important paper, and this is a really um, a significant issue that I think everybody who does a Kasai uh, wrestles with this question of whether steroids should be used or not. And I personally used to use them in my practice, but based on this study, uh, have stopped using them. And I think that it gives it is a very well constructed, very well run study uh, with with very sophisticated statistics and a good randomization scheme that I think provides the best data in the literature to suggest that there is not a statistically significant difference when steroids are given versus when they are not. So Dan, teach me here because I'm reading this paper and I'm not as convinced as you. Uh, so I, I want to better understand because all the smart people I know who've read this paper have stopped using steroids. I'm the only one left still using them. <laughs> so uh, what I'm reading here is that there were a higher percentage of patients that uh, achieved drainage in the steroid group. Now, I get that that's not statistically significant because they did power the study for a 25% difference, and this was only 10%. But given that the complications were about the same, I mean, the steroid group did have a high earlier onset of, of cholangitis, but the total number was the same. Why not give the steroids? Is it... Is it that you, it's an unnecessary treatment and so we shouldn't give it? Or do you, are you afraid of something? Or why, why, why not give them? So I think it really comes down to whether you think that the 25% difference is the, right, uh, is the right metric to use for whether steroids are worthwhile or not and whether that is a clinically significant difference. And the authors of the paper, and I believe them, uh, feel that anything less than a 25% difference is probably not worth the potential risk of the early complications associated with the steroids. And so because the, uh, the results did not uh, prove that a, a greater than 25% difference was present, then the author's argument is that it's not worth the potential early complications associated with the steroids. More importantly, if you look at the overall liver survival, which is the ultimate outcome, uh, you know, to avoid liver transplant, that is clearly not different between the two groups. Right, right. So using that as the outcome, there's no difference. 
And so why add a, a whole other therapy? Right. I mean, the whole point of this is to preserve the native liver. I mean, you could also make the argument that in the data, there was about a 10% difference if you looked at the um, bile uh, bilirubin level in the patients who are uh, were treated with steroids was about 10% lower than the patients who were not treated with steroids up uh, for their duration of effect of maintaining a, a, a low bilirubin level. However, again, at the outset, I mean, at the uh, termination of the study, the transplant rate was the same. So the use of steroids, is it um, proposed that, and, and you may not know this answer, but because uh, a lot of this is theoretical, is it proposed that the process of the atresia is still ongoing and the steroids may prevent further development of the biliary atresia process, or is it to protect the anastomosis? I think there are two mechanisms that are proposed as the physiology through which uh, steroids might impact the outcome in this disease process. One is, is that, as you alluded to, the, this is an inflammatory process and it's still ongoing and that uh, the steroids reduce the inflammation and preserve some of those little ductules to which you do your uh, portoanorostomy. The second effect is that uh, steroids are a known cholearetic, and so essentially it's giving a, it would be like giving a diuresis after a kidney transplant to maintain urine flow, and that you're maintaining bile flow by giving the uh, steroids, and that that would ultimately help that uh, flow to be preserved. That's great. That was a great summary of it, and it certainly helps me understand. And I think just to summarize here, what I'm hearing you say is that uh, surgeons listening to this should know that the literature is pretty clear here that there is no added benefit that has been demonstrated of steroids in patients with biliary atresia after Kasai. Is that correct? I think that's true. I think that you have to always be careful about generalizing studies. And in this study, it is specifically testing a fairly long course, 14 13 uh, week course of high dose steroids. Uh, but in that patient population with that treatment regimen, there was no difference in the long term outcome of the need for uh, liver transplant or death. Well, Dan, as always, I appreciate you uh, always contributing to these new methods of education, and I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to, to present this article to everyone, and uh, hopefully we'll do more of these again in the future. My pleasure, and I look forward to it. This concludes Dr. Von Allman's discussion. We now continue to Dr. Holcomb's discussion. And with us today, we have Dr. Whit Holcomb who is the first podcast faculty that we've had, uh, who originally did appendicitis. And uh, today, Dr. Holcomb, who is the Surgeon-in-Chief at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, uh, is going to be reviewing uh, two articles for us. So, Whit, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Todd. I'm glad to be here. So what you got today? What articles are we looking at? So there are two articles. The first article is uh, entitled Comparative Effectiveness of skin antiseptic agents in reducing surgical site infections, a report from the Washington State Surgical Care and Outcomes Assessment Program by a number of physicians led by Dr. Hakarainen. This article was published in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons, March 2014. The uh, article is an interesting paper. Um, 
in that it comes from a prospectively gathered clinical uh, clinical registry that includes more than 50 hospitals in the state of Washington. The authors performed a cohort analysis to evaluate the relationship of four commonly used skin antiseptic agents and looked at their effectiveness with surgical site infections, and that'll be abbreviated SSI going forward. Now, these are mostly adult patients, uh, and they're going undergoing clean contaminated operations over an 18-month period beginning January 2011. The authors also wanted to look and see whether isopropyl alcohol had a unique and beneficial effect on SSI. Again, it's important to emphasize, emphasize for our audience that these are general surgery procedures in adults. 60% of the cases were colorectal in nature, 34% were bariatric, and 6% were deemed to be other. Uh, all the cases were classified as clean contaminated. In this uh, registry data, the overall rate of SSI was 4.6%, but this differed between colorectal, where it was 6.6%, bariatric, where it was 1.4%, and 1.5% in the other cases. The primary outcome variable in this study was SSI during the index hospitalization. Now, what did the authors found? They found that they could not identify a single antiseptic agent that was associated with a lower risk of SSI than any other agent. They also found that the unadjusted rate of SSI in the uh, agents that did not have isopropyl alcohol was 4.5%, and that was compared to 4.6% with the agents who did have isopropyl alcohol as part of the mixture. Thus, they found no benefit in having isopropyl alcohol as, an, uh, as part of the antiseptic agent. Now, a few comments about the paper. Um, one of the limitations of the uh, paper was that the registry data could not identify an SSI if it was diagnosed after discharge. And therefore, these data probably underestimate the true rate of SSI uh, in this uh, risk classification scheme. Uh, as another uh, recent report showed, 50% or more SSIs are diagnosed after discharge. The commonly accepted time frame from which uh, most SSI occur is three to, three to 10 days after operation. And in this particular study, the average length of stay among the patients was six to seven days. Another problem with this study is that there was a wide variation in the use of antiseptic agents across hospital sites, as well as the type of general surgical procedure performed. And there was also significant variability in the populations that were being used for each uh, uh, anesthetic, uh, antiseptic agent group. So in conclusion, this is a prospectively gathered data registry looking at SSI for clean contaminated cases. There were no benefits to one antiseptic agent over another, and isopropyl alcohol did not offer any added benefit either. Again, this study is in adults and dealt primarily with colorectal and bariatric cases. 
so weird. that was a great summary. And um, I guess my question for you is, uh, you know, one of the things they compared was, as you said, a sort of the uh, iodine type solution versus a chloroprep um, type of solution. And I know at, at our hospital, they've made us switch from the iodine base to the chloroprep because they said that studies have shown decreased uh, site infections. So I guess my question is twofold. What do you do in your hospital and will this article change your practice? In our hospital, we also have changed to uh, chlorhexidine uh, and uh, isopropyl alcohol, and uh, we've continued to uh, do that, uh, except in cases where we want to prep out uh, a mucous membrane uh, uh, part of the body. So, for instance, uh, a circumcision, we wouldn't necessarily do that in or, or some other uh, area. Uh, that uh, we wouldn't want to necessarily get the chlorhexidine uh, in it. Now, it's important to realize that most of the cases that we perform in pediatric surgery are clean cases, and so this article really does not uh, uh, address uh, clean cases, but it addresses clean contaminated cases. And so we continue to use the uh, uh, the chlorhexidine or chloroprep just as you are, uh, and have found that uh, we've not noticed either an increase or even a, a decrease in SSI, uh, at least in our institution, uh, with that change. And so um, with with uh, this article, I know this is clean contaminated, at least I can say that, you know, um, if they want to use the iodine-type solution, at least for a clean contaminated case, it's probably not a huge problem. And Man, those three minutes are sometimes pretty hard to wait for. So uh, it's always it would be nice to use the baited the baited on type solution. Um, but I guess for now I'm going to stick with the 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 chlor 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 prep or whichever is the chlorhexidine with isopropyl alcohol. Right, that's that's correct. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of things are now being known about preps, and as you mentioned, uh, one uh, aspect of using the uh, uh, betadine or iodine preps is that uh, it needs to wait and dry, and usually it takes it three minutes or so. So the case can get started a, a lot faster if you use the chloroprep or a similar agent. And if you're doing six or seven cases a day, every minute seems to help uh, get the cases moving along. So there is an added benefit uh, that the chloroprep or similar agent does dry faster so than the uh, betadine or iodine prep solutions. Let me clarify this because I, I want this is actually an interesting point. So for us, and I think you said something that I probably do wrong. For us, it's the opposite that the chloroprep, uh, we have to wait three minutes for it to dry, and the betadine, I don't. I just go, just paint it and go. Um, is it? And I've heard from people saying that you're supposed to wait for the betadine to dry as well. Do do you? Uh, is your chlora chlorhexidine type solution? Uh, one that you don't have to wait three minutes, or does you wait for both th about three minutes? Well, in in practical terms, the uh, the chloroprep or uh, similar agent dries faster than the betadine does, and so we generally want to make sure that the betadine uh, prep is dry, and so we we generally wait 
several minutes to make sure that's dry as opposed to the uh, chloroprep or similar agent uh, dries faster and it seems like we're able to go on and get started um, uh, faster than we would with the betadine. Okay. Well, that was a, a good discussion, and I think uh, this will probably be revisited every few years uh, going forward, as it always is. Um, let's move on to the next article. What was the the next article that you were going to review? So the next article is entitled Non-Operative Treatment with Antibiotics Versus Surgery for Acute Non-Perforated Appendicitis in Children a pilot randomized control trial. This paper uh, is a, a multi-institutional uh, group of authors uh, from um, Stockholm, uh, Great Ormond Street, uh, Toronto, and uh, was published in the Annals of Surgery in uh, 2015. Uh, so, uh, this is a, uh, a good study to discuss because it's a harbinger of things to come. Uh, the authors report a pilot study, and it's a pilot study because there was no power analysis performed. The patients in this study were between 5 and 15 years of age, and they had non-perforated appendicitis based on imaging studies. So it's important to remember or realize that we're talking about non-perforated appendicitis. Uh, these were patients who otherwise would have undergone a laparoscopic appendectomy, uh, and they were randomized to either non-operative management with antibiotics or to laparoscopic appendectomy. The follow-up time period was one year. It's important that the authors uh, develop discharge criteria for both arms of the study, and that included the patient being afebrile for 24 hours, uh, the patient having adequate pain relief on oral analgesics, the patient tolerating a light diet, and the patient being ambulatory. Their primary outcome variable was the number of children in each group who achieved, as they called it, resolution of symptoms without significant complications. <laughs> Secondary outcomes included median time to discharge as well as cost. Now, during the time frame of the study, uh, and it's a recent study as it uh, was just published earlier this year, there were 225 children seen with the diagnosis of appendicitis, and exclusion criteria eliminated 57 patients. Uh, in addition, 77 patients and families declined to participate 37 patients were not, were not asked, two were excluded by the investigator, and then there was one randomization failure. So they randomized, and their plan was to perform uh, the study on 50 total patients. 26 were randomized to operation, and 24 were, were randomized to non-operative treat with antibiotics. Two of the 24 patients in the non-operative treatment arm underwent laparoscopic appendectomy within the time frame of the primary antibiotic therapy treatment course, and one patient underwent appendectomy nine months later for a recurrent acute appendicitis. However, it's important to realize that another six patients had an appendectomy due to recurrent abdominal pain or parental desire during the one-year follow-up time period. None of these six patients had evidence of appendicitis on histologic examination. Uh, 
So I disagree a little bit with the author, one of the author's initial conclusions, and that was that 22 out of 24 patients, that is 92%, treated non-optically had initial resolution of symptoms with only one patient having a recurrence during the follow-up period. So in my looking at it, a total of nine of the 24 patients initially randomized to antibiotic therapy underwent appendectomy at some point in the, the first year of the study so that the failure rate, at least from my perspective, is really 38% and the success rate of non-operative treatment is 62%. Other findings included the fact that the median time to discharge was significantly shorter in the surgical group than in the non-operative treatment group. However, this may be because there was a stipulated 48-hour minimum hospitalization for those in the non-operative management group. Also, the cost for the initial inpatient stay was interestingly significantly lower in the non-operative treatment group than in the group undergoing operation. This is in spite of the fact that their hospitalization were longer and it points to the fact that uh, undergoing an operation can be uh, costly when um, compared with non-operative management. So in conclusion, this is a good pilot study, and it shows that a definitive randomized trial comparing non-operative treatment with antibiotics and laparoscopic appendectomy for non-perforated appendicitis would be safe and feasible. And in fact, such a study is already planned between these authors and several other centers. And in fact, our center will be participating in this trial. So I am very excited about this paper. I think this is one of these topics that's been pretty hot lately and will continue to make a big impact in our profession. Obviously, this is just a pilot study, and they, they really need to look at a very long-term follow-up to, to look at, if you're truly going to compare operative versus non-operative, they need to look at the incidence of bowel obstruction after surgery uh, to see what the complications would be from that operation. Likely, they might get bowel obstructions after non-operative management as well by leaving in the scarred appendix. You know, Whit, I'm wondering at your institution, I know you're going to be part of the upcoming study, have you ever treated patients non-operatively with acute appendicitis? Uh, no, we have uh, we have not. Yeah, I haven't, but I know people who have been treated non-operatively because they were a poor operative candidate, and they did great. Um, so it, at least it's helpful to know that in a in a situation where someone may not be the best operative candidate, even though the data is not pure yet, there's evidence to suggest that in the majority of patients it may be safe. Would you agree with that? I w yes, I would agree. The the patient population that comes to mind that we do uh, treat uh, sometimes non-operatively is the immunosuppressed cancer patient who has tiflitis. Now, tiflitis is not appendicitis, but it's somewhat close. And most of the time, those patients, uh, their inflammation resolves with antibiotics. Uh, so, I have not treated someone uh, non-optically, but the literature is uh, beginning to tell us that a certain population of patients can probably be treated. The trick for us will be to figure out which population can be treated successfully and which population uh, should undergo the uh, undergo the operation relatively 
soon after presentation. Yeah, no, I agree. And the the other thing is the, the most important part of any trial uh, will not will be the follow up period, and it's it's hard to know even if you have say a five year follow up period or even ten year follow up period. Uh, most patients in such a trial will only be fifteen to twenty years of age with a ten year follow up, uh, and so they're going to live for another forty or fifty mm-hmm. years, and so. Mm-hmm. Are they at risk for developing appendicitis, you know, after they get out of the uh, the pediatric surgeon's uh, age group? And and so it would be really important to try to follow these patients for a very long time. Uh, and we may not even see the answer uh, in our lifetimes, but it uh, it may be apparent in our uh, the next generation's lifetime. No, I think that's right. And we were just sort of saying they're going to have to republish every 10 years to show what the real numbers are. Right, uh, right. You know, one of the things that was disconcerting was that, and, and that you highlighted, was the number of patients that didn't have active appendicitis but required the appendix to be removed because of abdominal pain. It's almost like non-operative neck. You know, you can get through the inflammatory phase, but they probably have some scarring and stricture of the appendix which can lead to subacute pain uh, and ultimately to recurrent appendicitis when they're older. So that that is a very real thing that may present 40 years later, like you said. Yes, and a, and a few parents in this study, remember only 24 patients were randomized to non-operative management, but a few parents really wanted their their child's appendix out so they wouldn't have to worry about it. And if you think about it, if we can take the appendix, if we can see the patient, assess them, take the appendix out within a, a few hours and then discharge them that same day, it's sort of like an outpatient procedure. And right. it may be difficult to uh, argue against just doing that versus treating them for a day or two with antibiotics uh, and then wondering whether they're going to relapse the next week or next year or 10 years later. So, I really believe that an important aspect of any study will be getting the parent's perspective on treatment, whether it's operative or non-operative. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. Whit, as always, we really appreciate you always taking the time for these uh, academic endeavors, uh, and everyone loves to hear your thoughts on things. So we appreciate the time uh, to review these articles and present them for us. So uh, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed doing this. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This concludes Dr. Holcomb's discussion. We now continue to Dr. Lipscar's discussion. Today we have with us Dr. Aaron Lipscar, and uh, Aaron's going to go over two articles that are very relevant to pediatric surgery. Aaron, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Todd. Aaron, can you first tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Aaron Lipscar. I'm an assistant professor of surgery and pediatrics at Cohen Children's Medical Center in Long Island, um, part of the North Shore Long Island Jewish Health System. Perfect. Tell us what article you're going to be starting with today. Uh, First, we're going to be looking at an article from the Journal of Pediatrics from July of 2015 titled, The Predictors of Enteral Autonomy in Children with Intestinal Failure, um, a Multicenter Cohort Study. Um, This is a a study put together by the Pediatric Intestinal Failure Consortium, or PIFCON, uh, which consists of 14 multidisciplinary intestinal rehab programs around uh, the country. Nine of these 14 sites also had affiliated intestinal transplantation programs. Just to be clear on some definitions throughout the paper, 
Um, intestinal failure uh, was defined as severe congenital or acquired gastrointestinal diseases during infancy with dependence on parenteral nutrition for more than 60 days in a 74-day period. And enteral autonomy was defined as uh, parenteral nutrition discontinuation for a time period of greater than three months. Okay. So what did they find? What did, what, what did the studies show? So this, uh, really what they tried to do is describe the cumulative incidence of achieving enteral autonomy and identifying patient and institutional characteristics associated with enteral autonomy uh, from this very large cohort of children. And uh, they did a multi-center retrospective cohort analysis from their consortium. Um, they were able to accumulate 272 patients for a median follow-up of uh, 33 months, about three-year follow-up. Uh, they, they found that enteral autonomy was achieved in 43% of their cohort, which is, fits with uh, much of the data that's out there. 13% of their patients remained uh, parenteral nutrition dependent, and 43% of patients either died or underwent transplantation. What they, uh, what they found was that um, patients with an underlying diagnosis of necrotizing enterocolitis or care at a uh, intestinal rehab facility without an associated transplant center, and patients with ileocecal valves all attained enteral autonomy at a statistically significant higher level. And when they looked at a separate set of data of, the, of those kids who had residual small bowel length measured, um, that addi additionally was a uh, statistically significant variable to attain enteral autonomy, although not, uh, not quite as impressive as the other three variables. Uh, what's interesting about this paper is that multiple reports have demonstrated the importance of residual bowel length on outcome, and, uh, but the data on the impact of the ileocecal valve on adaptation has been more variable, and here they really found an, uh, a uh, benefit of having an ileocecal valve. To me, one of the interesting parts is this uh, protective effect of necrotizing enterocolitis, which in some ways goes against some of our understanding of that inflammatory illness, and it really shows us how much we have to learn about uh, intestinal failure and um, what the risks and, and probabilities of enteral autonomy are. It's really cool because I have to tell you, they basically, as you just said, really that goes against the two things that I would have guessed, that necrotizing enterocolitis would have had a, a poorer prognosis and that I thought that we had been more and more thinking that the ileocecal valve did not have as much of an impact as we thought. But it looks like this paper disproved both of those things. Yeah, this, this paper sort of uh, gives us a lot of information that, uh, that we need to start doing a prospective look between this consortium, which is what their, which is what their goal is, to really have a better understanding of it. And then, and then you know, just to, to really teach us how much we have to learn, in this same journal uh, from the same institution uh, with the leading institution of the, of the PIFCON group uh, was a paper looking at how necrotizing enterocolitis was a poor predictor of growth outcome in infants with short bowel syndrome. So the two things are, are presented right back to back in the same journal, which is a really interesting uh, concept. Wow. That's great. And, and which journal was this from again? This is the Journal of Pediatrics, July of 2015. Okay, great. So tell me, I mean, how is this paper going to affect your management of patients? Um, in many ways, it, it, it doesn't. There's a very interesting part of this that I think uh, intestinal rehab programs uh, think about a lot, which was this 
what appeared to be a protective effect of being in an intestinal rehab program that does not have an associated intestinal transplant program. There's been criticisms that perhaps the uh, existence of the transplant program biases an institution towards transplant. But when you look at the, uh, the patients, the, the residual small bowel length, the presence of an ileocecal valve, they seem to get sicker patients at the intestinal, at the transplant programs. So it's hard to make sense of that data. I think what this paper really changes is the importance if children with um, intestinal failure and what we call short gut syndrome to really have the opportunity to be managed in one of these multidisciplinary uh, intestinal rehab programs because the combination of eliminating collapses and uh, and cholestasis prevention is really going to has changed how we understand uh, enteral autonomy and, and intestinal failure. That's a great point, and that was a great review. Tell me what you got for the second article today. The second article is uh, a bit of a controversial article. It's actually a perspective article from the New England Journal of Medicine in February of 2015 titled uh, Anesthetic Neurotoxicity, Clinical Implications of Animal Models. And its authors are from both the FDA and uh, Northwestern University, as well as Wash U and uh, University of Toronto. And it really touches on an important uh, topic for our for us as pediatric surgeons, which is the potential uh, toxicity of general anesthesia on the developing brain. Um, so to give some background on the paper, in 2009, the FDA established a, a public-private partnership with the International Anesthesia Research Society. Uh, called Smart Tots or Strategies for Mitigating Anesthesia-Related Neurotoxicity, and Smart Tots in 2012, along with the AAP, released a consensus statement that summarized the state of knowledge and presented some uh, recommendations. And although there was insufficient data at that time to draw any firm conclusions, the consensus statement recommended that perhaps the elective surgical procedures that were performed under anesthesia be avoided in children less than three years. And it really called for further research. And since then, a significant amount of animal as well as observational population-based studies have been uh, undertaken. Uh, some of the new animal studies have confirmed that the commonly used anesthetics and sedatives that either increase inhibitory GABA receptor activity or block excitatory glutamate receptors. This includes, by the way, propofol, etomidate, sevoflurane, isoflurane, and ketamine produce profound neurotoxic effects in laboratory animals, ranging from nematodes to non-human primates. There is problems with many of these studies. There, some of these um, medications are given at high doses for long periods of time, but the evidence is quite compelling. And this compelling evidence is supported by a small number of observational studies in children who undergo anesthesia early in life. And these observational studies offer conflicting results, and they're confounded by multiple factors. But they uh, do suggest that some children may have deficits, although it's very difficult to show a causation, if anything, just an association. Nevertheless, in June of 2014, Smart Tots convened a meeting to review the data that has accumulated, and they released a new statement. They concluded that the current data from animal studies is now sufficiently convincing that large-scale clinical studies are warranted, and they produced a new statement recommending that surgical procedures performed under anesthesia be avoided in children under three years of age unless the situation is urgent or potentially harmful if not attended to. The statement also emphasizes the need to determine whether anesthetic and sedative drugs cause brain damage in infants, toddlers, and children. 
Um, you know, Todd, this is a big problem for us because it really would change how we practice pediatric surgery. And there are very uh, important fundamental questions that remain to be answered. Uh, we hope that a combination of animal studies and well-designed clinical trials uh, will help. And uh, there does seem to be mounting evidence that there is some neurotoxic effect of general anesthesia on the developing brain. So the authors conclude that in the meantime, while we're accumulating this data, parents and care providers should be made aware of the potential risks of these anesthetics and um, that, um, that surgeons, anesthesiologists, and parents should carefully consider how urgently surgery is needed, particularly in children under the age of three. Aaron, I think this is, of the articles that we've reviewed recently, probably the most talked about topic in the last six months to a year. You know, I, I, obviously, we don't know really any hard facts yet. We don't know anything for sure. But I certainly am noticing a trend towards delaying elective surgery. Let me ask you, in general, do you ever delay a, an inguinal hernia repair for anesthetic concerns? Um, I have yet to delay an inguinal hernia for anesthetic concerns. Um, I think that it's something that we are going to have to look at carefully as pediatric surgeons. I think a, a more difficult question would be a circumcision under general anesthesia. That's a great question. How do you do your circumcisions there at North Shore? Um, unless, outside of the neonatal period, they're done with uh, general as, as well as regional anesthesia. And that leads me to the uh, concept of regional anesthesia because that, that's really a field that I'm hoping it, it changes uh, how we deliver general anesthesia to our patients. I find a lot of correlations within this debate to the what happened with the CAT scan uh, radiation risk debate, and uh, I'm hesitant to make too many changes without solid data as we completely changed how we uh, work up appendicitis based on unclear data of cancer risk from radiation. But uh, nevertheless, um, things like... Um, Presidex and regional anesthesia will help us decrease the amount of general anesthesia we can give in many operations, in almost every laparoscopic or thoracoscopic or open operation. There is a regional block that can diminish the amount of uh, potentially neurotoxic medications that need to be administered. Yeah, um, and I think that's a great point. At our hospital, our chief of anesthesia, anesthesiology said that you give us the rule of twos, that uh, try to defer elective operations till after two. I know the article said three, but that's our rule. And try not to have two anesthetics in, in, in a year. So dermoid cysts now, I just saw one last week. She was six months old. I told them come back in two years, you know, in a year and a half. I think that with hernias, we know there's a risk of waiting. We don't know the risk of the anesthesia yet. So I don't uh, even let that come into play because the younger they are, the higher risk of incarceration, you know, then also the higher risk of an anesthetic complication. But I don't have that impact me at all. You know, um, there's, there's another piece of this that is very important. I actually have a uh, a paper being uh, presented at AAP uh, within the manuscripts in progress of what parental perceptions of the risks of anesthesia are, because it's an interesting topic that we really haven't been tried in the court of public opinion yet. There have been some articles in in press but it hasn't reached prime time, and, and, it, and it will, and uh, I think we need to be prepared. What, what we found is that really, as of right now, it's not too much on parents' radars. We, we did a survey study of parents in a primary care pediatrics office. We surveyed about 150 parents and, uh, and caregivers and found that uh, the vast majority did not know that this was a major issue.
Yeah. It's definitely a hot topic. I think it'll be uh, more information coming to the parents and to us as this gets studied more. So, Aaron, thank you so much for uh, spending the time today to go over these two pretty pretty important articles. And uh, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Todd. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery. You can listen, watch, or read all content by downloading the Stay Current in Surgery app. Please send questions or comments to us at staycurrentpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.